Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following recording is from our Sunday morning gathering. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. I was going to say over the last number of weeks, but really it's been over the last number of months. We've been working our way through the text of 1 Corinthians. I think initially when we sat down, Pastor Adam and I uh, talked about our desire to preach through a book of the Bible, and uh, we, we looked at 1 Corinthians as something that we wanted to teach. And I think when we initially set out, uh, our goal wasn't to go like verse by verse or even chapter by chapter. We wanted to highlight themes, but I think it became readily apparent as we started preparing and preaching through this that there is so much that Paul is speaking um, that it's kind of turned into a, a verse by verse, a chapter by chapter kind of teaching as we emphasize each one of these themes. And uh, I'm excited about it. I've really enjoyed preaching through uh, the text like this. But we've been kind of highlighting this letter that Paul wrote to the uh, church in Corinth. It was a church that he planted. It was a church that he was passionate about. And it was a church full of issues. How many of you guys know that the church, this church, any church that you find yourself in, is probably going to have a lot of issues? Uh, There's probably things that are wrong because people are messy. We understand that, right? (laughs) Uh, This is compounded by the fact that all of these people that make up the church in Corinth are brand new Christians. None of them grew up in the church None of them grew up following Jesus. They're they're first-generation Christians. And so there are a lot of things that Paul has to address, that he has to uh, kind of bring correction to. Um, And it's not not something that is abnormal or out of place. Um, And so this is a, it's an exciting letter. And I've been just encouraged as we've been walking through it. But in it, so far, we have, we have seen Paul address the church in Corinth, um, and uh, I believe not just the church in Corinth, but the church at large, the body of Christ, um, in regards to uh, things like unity amongst the body of Christ. That was the biggest theme that we've encountered so far. The whole first four chapters of the book uh, revolve around this thing of not being divided, but being unified. We see things like church discipline and sexual immorality. We see Paul's takes on marriage and relationships. And in the most recent chapters, where we've been in chapters 8 and 9, we've seen this thing about food sacrificed to idols. Now, I think the temptation for us right now is to immediately check out. Like, we, we could probably get behind Paul on unity in the body of Christ. We could probably get behind him and say, you know what, like church discipline, that's kind of relevant. Yeah, sexual immorality, that's, that's ultra relevant. And marriage, that's ultra relevant. But we get to this, like, segment of teaching where he's talking about food sacrifice to idols. And it's easy for us to probably just check out and be like, well, this is not relevant to me. This is not something that, you know, we're struggling with right now. I don't know if anybody has gone down to, like, the local chapter of Aphrodite's temple here in Pagosa and been, like, sacrificing uh, animals and eating the meat. Anybody? That was a test. Okay. We were going to have a whole, like, line item in the agenda for the annual business meeting about you if you were uh, doing that. Right? This isn't something that is, like, common practice for us. Right? This isn't something that I, I hope you're not struggling with going and, uh, you know, going to these wild orgies and these things uh, uh, at a temple where you're eating meat sacrificed to idols and, and these things that were commonplace in Corinth. But I still believe that it is relevant for us today. And it's this idea, this, this principle of Christian liberty that Adam introduced a few weeks ago when he taught on um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I think it's very much, if not maybe even more relevant to our relationship with Jesus and how we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, It's of utmost importance. Um, And we're going to kind of flesh that out and and walk through kind of the underlying principles of what was taking place in Corinth, why they're relevant to us today, and why it's important that we take this seriously. So um, I'd encourage you, don't check out this morning. Don't, 
don't kind of fall into the back burner and just be like, well, Pastor Nate's talking about food sacrifice idols. That's not relevant to me. I'm not doing that, so I'm good. Like, this is not the time to get on, like, angry birds on your phone. I don't know what's relevant today. I know angry birds is how... Flappy bird? Is that a thing? I thought that was old. Okay. I don't know. What's the game that everybody's playing on their phones these days? Chess. Chess? Cool. This would now be uh, not the time to bust out your phones and uh, be on Facebook Marketplace or playing chess or something like that. Um, I believe that this is relevant for us today. And so we're going to begin in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Um, that's where we're, we're going to kind of uh, be for the majority of the morning. Um, but his thought process in regards to what we're talking about in chapter 10 actually begins in chapter 8. Uh, and if you've missed any of these teachings, I'd encourage you, we have a podcast. We have all of our teachings online. I think we're on Spotify. We're on Apple. You can go straight to our website and you can catch up on these things. But without understanding what's taking place in chapters 8 and chapters 9, chapter 10 can seem like something totally disconnected. And so, uh, but I, I want to be clear that chapters 8, 9, and 10, and even into the first verse of 11, um, are all kind of centered around this same thought and answering this same question that the Corinthian church has asked. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Adam taught on this, I think, three weeks ago now, um, but it's online. But we see Paul laying down kind of two key uh, important principles. See, initially... Uh, I think uh, he asserts that idols hold no true significance, and he permits the Corinthian Christians who comprehend this, con uh, this to conduct themselves accordingly, particularly in personal matters. But uh, beyond that, he says that Christians' love is greater than knowledge. And so even though I may know that eating meat sacrificed to an idol is all right for myself, if it causes my brother to stumble, I'm not going to do it because it isn't the loving thing to do. And so there's this idea that he says, yes, we understand that idols don't have any real power. There's not a real deity behind them. And Christians that uh, understand this, they, they are free. They are permitted to eat meat that may be sacrificed to nothing uh, personally. But he says that beyond that, uh, you know, it's more about how our interaction is with our brothers and sisters. And so if we move past that, um, that's, that's a, a, a really understated way to explain chapter 8. But we've preached on chapter 8. And <laughs> we see Paul flesh this out again in chapter 9, where um, he invites Christians to live sacrificially. He invites them to give up their rights, um, if you will, uh, for the sake of the gospel. And he uses himself as a demonstration there. And uh, it's this idea that even giving up good things, right? Uh, we understand that not everything is evil, um, but that there is, there is a time and place to give up good things if it means not hindering the gospel um, of Jesus going forth, if it means not hindering someone else in their walk with Christ. And so 8 and 9 talk about these things that, yeah, maybe technically we could get away with doing something and it not being sin, but if it's not done from a place of love, and if it's not uh, living with our brothers and our sisters in mind, then why are we even having this conversation is essentially what Paul is saying. So this, that, that's somewhat of a backdrop. Again, we flesh those teachings out more uh, in the last couple weeks, but that brings us to chapter 10. And at first glance of chapter 10, if you've read it, it almost seems like Paul's distracted, like he has some kind of spiritual form of ADHD, and he starts talking about something completely unrelated. It, it almost seems like he switches gears, and instead of actually like answering our question or answering the Corinthians' question about meat sacrificed to idols, he begins to give this history lesson on ancient Israel. Um, but can I tell you, he's not distracted. He's being very intentional in writing under the prompting of the Holy Spirit about uh, diving into this history of Israel. And so I think it's important for us to remember here that Paul is answering questions. 
that were received from the Corinthian church. He answered questions about church discipline. He answered, uh, well, and he kind of, I guess he responded to reports about sexual immorality and church discipline. But he was giving answers to questions about marriage and relationships and lawsuits and these things. And now he's answering this question about Christian liberty on whether or not something is okay, right? This is what the, the Corinthian church is asking Paul. Hey, could you just like lay down the law for us? Could you tell us like, where the line is on what is good and what is bad, what's permissible and what's not. And I think I could paraphrase it in this way, um, just based upon the way Paul's responding here, but I kind of want to paraphrase what the Corinthian church is essentially asking here. And they're asking, where is the line with sin on what is sin and how close to the line are we allowed to tread are we allowed to be before it's displeasing to God? And I think what Paul is responding here is that that's the wrong question to be asking. This is the question that society as a whole is still asking. This is what many in the church are still asking. It's not this idea of, uh, of how can we be pleasing to the Lord, but we want to define things and we want to define sin and we want to have a line and we want to know how close to sin can we be and still be okay with God? You know, that, that's really what so many of us are, 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 are truly, really asking. We want to know what we can get away with. How far can we push the envelope? How close to this line can we come and, you know, still technically be okay? And I think Paul's response in general here is that it's not about how close to the line we can get. It's not how close to sin can we be and still be technically okay, his response again and again and again is to flee sexual immorality, is to flee idolatry, is to run so far in the opposite direction that the line isn't even in question anymore. Does that make sense? And I believe that this is something that God desires for us. And so you might see that idea or you might see or hear my language there and think of it as something that is legalistic or um, legalistic. I can speak sometimes. Or uh, I wrote down this word, curmudgeonry. I can never say that word correctly, curmudgeon, curmudgeonry. It's, that's, how, that's how it's spelled. I had to look it up. It seemed wrong. Like if you're a curmudgeon, but curmudgeonry. Curmudgeonry. Somebody's going to listen to this on the podcast and be like, that guy should go back to school. Um, or try, or don't use words that you don't know how to say. I typed it out. I even put like the phonetic way to say it. I still can't say it. But you might view me as legalistic. Or you might view that, uh, that kind of thought process as legalistic. And I have said for a long time now that I believe holiness and legalism often look very similar might even come out to the same outcome or, or, or kind of the, the, same, the same end goal, but they're spurred on by entirely different motivations. And uh, I'll say that again. I think legalism and holiness are often, they, they often end in the same place. I think they look remarkably similar, but they have completely different motivations. Does that make sense? Um, because I believe the Holy Spirit can do such works, such works, such work, I think would be the better way to say that. I believe the Holy Spirit can do such work in our lives that it changes us, that he changes us to think less about what we can do to please ourselves and more about how we can live to please the Lord. I'm confident of that fact. And I think sometimes a desire for holiness gets lost on our culture, gets lost on the church, and it gets blamed and labeled as legalism. And it's something that the Lord is still desiring for his bride. I believe that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we invite the work of the Holy Spirit into our lives, that he does want to rearrange things. He does want to change things. And he does want to make us holy. 
He wants to change our conduct. He wants to change our lives. There are things that we don't do anymore, and then there are things that we do, uh, we do do. Um, man, I said do do. And then I had to say that I said do do. There are things that we do to please the Lord. Let's turn to First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, if we can, this morning. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, this is kind of an interesting break, right? This is where I'm talking about, like, Paul, why are we going into this history lesson? Why are we changing gears here? Now, this is a, this is a pretty well-known story from the Old Testament, uh, from Israel's history, called the Exodus. And it's where God would deliver his people from Egypt. He would lead them through the Red Sea. Uh, and then uh, they, would, they would wind up in the wilderness for 40 years before they enter into the promised land. There's a lot that takes place. There's a whole, the, the whole second book of the Bible will kind of explain in depth what took place during that time frame. Uh, but Paul is giving a very uh, condensed version here and in the next few verses of the Exodus and Israel's history here. Um, but the, the point that he's making here um, was that ancient Israel and the Israelites had these profound encounters with the Lord. They were highly blessed in their knowledge of who God was, and they had spectacular spiritual experiences with God. And he's making these parallels to the Corinthian church, and the point is that your spiritual experiences do not equate to spiritual maturity. The things that you've done, the, the encounters that you've had with the Lord, the blessing you may have received from God does not equate to you being pleasing to the Lord. This is something that I think is, is very important for us to, to kind of pause and think about, especially in today's culture where we're seeing all of these uh, scandals that exist regarding uh, churches and ministers and ministries where it gets really disheartening and really discouraging because I look at some of these things and man, I, I look at some of these profound things that these men of God have done and accomplished for the kingdom and seen miraculous outpourings of the Holy Spirit and be like, what in the world? And it's important to remember that spiritual experiences do not equate to God being pleased with us. And at the end of the day, I'm not so much interested in having another spiritual experience as I am knowing that I am pleasing to the Lord. I mean, that's Matthew chapter 7, is it not? That there are going to be people that stand before him on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Didn't we heal the sick? Didn't we cast out demons? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. I want to stand before God and have him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to know that I am pleasing to the Lord. But we see here that spiritual experiences do not equate to God being pleased with someone. You see, the Corinthian church thought of themselves as being super spiritual, right? Paul would even use the language saying that they lack no spiritual gift. And so uh, I think it's interesting here that Paul makes reference to the Corinthian church, um, and then he makes reference to baptism. And he also makes reference to the Lord's Supper here kind of vaguely. And these are things that I believe the Corinthian church prided themselves in. They took great pride in this. Um, but Paul is going to actually have to bring correction to both of these things in the next chapter as well. And so I think this is kind of like a, a little prelude to that. But the Corinthians, because they're now Christians, have this sense that they have spiritually arrived because they're basing it upon their spiritual experiences. But Paul wants to warn them that spiritual experiences aren't equivalent to God being pleased with how you're living. 
And so I, I want to take, take a closer look here uh, and dive a little bit more into this. And so let's look at how the Israelites were blessed just from this passage here. There's obviously more we could dig into. But it says that they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Now, this is a reference to God's manifest Shekinah presence that led the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness, right? This was a, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. This was, uh, these were people that knew without a shadow of a doubt that their God was with them. This wasn't just an idea anymore. This wasn't just somebody had told us stories about who God was. They could step out of their tent and see that their God was with them. Like that is, that is profound. These are the same Israelites that pass through the Red Sea, right? Where, where the waters are pushed back and they walk through on dry ground as they're escaping Pharaoh and his army, right? Every single one of them that walked through the Red Sea knew that their God was with them and fighting for them because they witnessed with their own eyes that the waters parted. This miraculous, uh, undeniable event, right? They also saw those same waters come and destroy their enemies that were chasing them for their life. This was a miraculous thing. And it's kind of reflected back on throughout Scripture as one of the most profound miracles to have taken place. I don't know about you, but I think most of us would probably have a similar mentality to this, that if we saw God do something that miraculous, that undeniable, where we, where we encountered his presence manifest like that, personally like that, where we saw his miraculous power demonstrated like that, that we'd never complain, that we would never grumble, that we would never sin against him again, right? I think I would have, I, I think at some level I, I want to have that mentality because we'd read the story of Israel and be like, man, these guys are dumb. <laughs> Don't they know like who they're talking to? I hate to break it to you, but human nature has a way of letting us down because it doesn't take long for the Israelites to forget about how incredible of a miracle this was. And I... I doubt that there's anyone in this room that would do much better. We might be more spiritual. We might have greater insight. But I think, I think that we would probably be in the same boat as the Israelites where we're complaining about lack of quail or lack of meat. <laughs> where we're complaining about the way that God's doing things. Even though we just saw him do this miraculous, just impossible feat. I think the fact of the matter is that Jesus has done something far more incredible than split the waters of the Red Sea for us. I think the miracle of the cross supersedes, doesn't even come close in, in realm of comparison to this. But we still find ourselves complaining. We still find ourselves grumbling and sinning against God. You see, this passage hits particularly close to home for me because I... <gasps> think often about all my friends I went to Bible college with or the friends that I grew up in, in youth group with where we sat under the same teachings, where we had the same profound spiritual experiences, where we saw God do miraculous things, where we saw people get saved, where we saw blind eyes open, where we, where we, where we saw God do impossible things and we, we saw his faithfulness again and again and again and again. Remember those times of, of prayer that we would have with praying for one another where, where we experienced the very presence of God. I look back now and some of them became pastors and got hurt by the church. They're not even following Jesus today. Less than half of us <laughs> I don't actually want to break down the math or I, I might get too depressed, but I'm thinking about just the people from our ministry school. I can count on one hand how many are still actively following Jesus. I should be clear that there wasn't that many people in the school. So, <laughs> but... Um,
I believe this message to Corinth from Paul about the Israelites is the same message that is being delivered to us today. And I believe it's a warning to remind you that you've not arrived, that you're not as spiritual as you think you are. And you're never too spiritual to move on from meeting Jesus. I think, that's a, I think that's a deceptive lie of the enemy that we might know in theory, like, oh, of course, like Pastor Nate says that, of course we always need Jesus. But I think sometimes our lifestyles beg to differ with what we think we know there. Can I tell you that your spiritual resume, whatever kind of experiences that you've had, whatever you've done, it's not that impressive to the Lord. I believe your recognition of need, your recognition that you actually need him is far more desirable from the Lord than any list of your accomplishments. I think verse five is particularly interesting because it goes on to say that nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This might be one of the grossest understatements of Paul in the entirety of the New Testament. I say that because, you know, depending on what, uh, where you look, there's anywhere between 600,000, an estimated 600,000 and like 2.1 million uh, people uh, that uh, scholars would think came out of Egypt in the Exodus. Um, and out of hundreds of thousands, um, if not millions, that perished over those 40 years in the wilderness, how many of that generation passed into the promised land? Two. <laughs> Joshua and Caleb. So, I, I mean, Paul's technically right here. Most of them perished. But it just is, it's just kind of like, just, couldn't you say all of them except two? Like, that seems like a little more like, drive your point home here, Paul. Like, I, I want you to understand, like, this is a drastic thing that took place, and this is what Paul's using as an example here. I just feel like he kind of undersold it just a little bit. But we go on to read in verses 6 through 10, he says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil, on evil things as they did. Man, I just want to be clear. I'm so glad that there are people that have gone before us that have made mistakes that we can learn from. That sounds a little twisted, like, oh man, I'm just so glad that people failed. But there are people, there are men and women of God that I look up to in my life that have made mistakes. And I've had the privilege of not having to learn those same lessons because of the wisdom passed on to me from them. And I think we look at Israel and it's easy for us to judge them, being like, oh, these guys are so stupid, right? They're so broken. Uh, we may look at the disciples and be like, disciples, why can't you get on board with what Jesus is doing? Can I be honest? Um, we have them as an example. We, we have their lessons as uh, uh, we have their lives, and we're, we've, we've been given them as an example, so we don't have to go through what they went through or do what they did. And I just don't think we should uh, view it as, we should view it as a gift. But it says that we have them, we have these things that occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The New King James says they got up to play. That means more than just uh, playing like hide-and-go-seek. Um, <laughs> leave that to you. In verse 8, it says, We should not commit sexual immorality, um, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroying angel. And so... We look at this, and Paul is giving uh, a condensed history here of some of the things that took place in the Exodus. And I believe that Paul is telling the Corinthians, and by proxy, all of Christendom, that we need to learn from Israel's mistakes. And so let's just take a look here. I, I'm just going to highlight four of the things 
that Paul mentions here of how Israel failed. The first thing that they say is they, they, they set their hearts on evil things. I like the New King James because it says that they lusted after evil things. Um, that, that, that idea of lust is this inability to say no. They could not say no to their desires. And this is something I, I think plagues modern Christianity and society at whole, uh, society as a whole, uh, very relevantly. Because to say yes to Jesus and his will means saying no to ours when they don't match up. I need you to understand that. To say yes to Jesus and to say yes to his will means saying no to your will when it doesn't align with his. And more often than not, my will does not line up with Jesus. I'd like to think as the years go by and the Holy Spirit has been working on me, the things and the desires of my heart more closely match up with the things that are in his heart, but they're constantly being exposed. Something that we constantly have to combat. And it's kind of like when I gave Kelly a wedding ring, right? We exchanged vows of, of love and exclusivity to one another before God and before a bunch of our closest friends and half of Pagosa that wasn't invited. But uh, <laughs> we entered into this marriage covenant, right? We entered into this promise of exclu of exclusivity, this exclusive promise to one another. <laughs> because to say yes to her meant I had to say no to anyone else that would try to come along. I know that maybe our society doesn't actually believe that anymore, but when you actually say yes to someone in the covenant of marriage, it means saying no to every other lover. And the same is true when it comes into our relationship with Christ. To say yes to Jesus means we have to say no to some things. And see, this is the problem that so many have with Jesus. They want to add a little bit of Jesus to their lives because they like some of the things that he has to say. They like some of the things that he stands for. And they're like, oh man, Jesus is a pretty rad guy. I like what he talks about when he says, you know, you should love your enemies, that you should pray for those who persecute you, man, that you should, that you should look after the widow and the orphan, but they don't like the part where he says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And so we kind of have this pick and choose Jesus. And we, we want to say yes to like a variation or a version of Jesus. And we don't want to say yes to his lordship. We want to add a little bit of Jesus to our lives. But we don't like the exclu exclusivity, ex exclusive. Wow, why can I not say that word? Exclu exclusivity. Whoa. I'll get there, guys. We don't like the exclusivity. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to go back to school that he demands. I can read it in my head. <laughs> they want to keep their options open, right? We want to, I, I think there's so many people that, that want to say yes to Jesus, but they don't want to say no to everything else that Jesus would want them to say no to. And so instead, we kind of halfway commit to Jesus because we're not willing to say no to every other lover that has our heart. See, we want a little bit of Jesus without actually having to give up anything else. Can I tell you, it just doesn't work that way. When we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to his lordship, it's a takeover. And we don't like that, right? We don't like the idea of submitting to anyone. But when we submit to the lordship of Christ, we say yes to him, and it requires us to say no to some things. And primarily, I think it requires us to say no to ourselves. And I think this is what Paul is actually getting at here, is what he's going to highlight here in just a moment. Because we see, as he goes on, before I get there, I want to be clear. Saying yes to Jesus, or even uh, for the sake of the illustration, as I was talking about Kelly, saying yes to Jesus and Kelly, what I've given up to say yes to both of them, uh, nothing even like, compares to what I've received. Does that make sense? Uh, nothing re even remotely compares to what I've gained by saying yes 
to both of them. Obviously, more so Jesus, but um, same with my wife. Uh, Saying yes to them uh, is 100% the best decision I've ever made in my life. Um, And I'm so grateful. uh, I'm so grateful for his grace and his mercy there. Um, But the second thing that we see that the Israelites did, that Paul makes mention here, is that they gave themselves to idolatry. And so verse 7 says, Don't be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. You see, Israel wanted something familiar. They gave themselves to idolatry, both in Exodus chapter 32, where we see them uh, kind of worshiping the golden calf, and then again, I'm going to use this as an example in just a moment, in Numbers 25, we see them give themselves to sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. And... uh, I want to be clear here because the idolatry that I think Paul is warning about here is not them going down to the temple of Aphrodite and eating meat sacrificed to idols and accidentally worshiping some false god. We've already established the fact that the Corinthian church recognizes that idols are just wood and stone, that there's no deity attached to them. I think the idolatry that Paul is warning of here is one that so closely resembles the idols that exist in our culture today of self. And so I wrote this. I I think that the Corinthians had different idols that they were worshiping. You see, they knew that the temples and the statues weren't actual deities with power. Instead, I believe that they were far more like us, more enlightened, if you will, where they made idols of their own knowledge, of their own rights, And it's an idol of self, of thinking higher of oneself than they ought. I think this is the danger for most of us, right? I don't think most of us have a problem with worshiping different idols, but I think we exalt ourselves to a place that should only be reserved for God, where we think higher uh, about ourselves. We place uh, a higher value upon our knowledge or our enlightenment, upon our rights or our liberties, then we ought to. And I believe that this leads way uh, into the third thing that Paul mentions here is that they they committed sexual immorality. Verse 8 goes on to say, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And then one day, 23,000 of them died. Israel, in their idolatry, surrendered to the temptation of sexual immorality. They did it again and again and again and again and again. And we know that this is not a problem that is foreign to the Corinthian church, right? They were having troubles with their sexual identities. They were having problems with condoning sexual immorality. And the context here suggests that it connected with their selfish desire to please themselves. Uh, And this is expressed on insisting their rights and their liberties. And so... Uh, He goes on here, and this is unique, that Paul references that 23,000 of them died. And so what's actually taking place is Paul's uh, kind of uh, taking uh, different parts of Israel's history and using them to illustrate a lesson. And I I believe this probably most uh, closely relates uh, to the story of Israel with the daughters of Moab in Numbers chapter 25. And so I want to read this to you. This This is a particularly interesting story. It's actually the namesake of my oldest son, Phineas. Um, Don't worry, we have not told him the story of his namesake, and you'll be like, well, why not? Uh, I'm going to read this to you, and you'll understand why. He's six. Um, (laughs) But in verse 1, it says, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meat and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. And so the Lord said to Moses, take all of the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So this is in the midst of them grieving over the people's sin, this gross idolatry and uh, sexual immorality that's taking place. They're grieving before the tent of meeting. 
And it says this, when Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach, and then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell, them, tell him I'm making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites." a pretty intense, brutal story. And so um, what I love about this story is Phineas's no-nonsense approach to blatant sin. He simply deals with it. <laughs> and I, I want to be clear, I'm not encouraging you guys to go and get spears. I brought a spear back from Africa for my son. I have a spear in my office. And, um, I'm not encouraging you guys just to go like start spearing people through that you see on the streets that are in sin. Um, please don't do that. Could you imagine the headlines? Like the local newspaper? Like, that's, how you, that's how you start a cult, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that's how you start a prison ministry. Never mind. Um, <coughs> don't do that. Not literally telling you guys to go run people through with spears. Um, but what the story illustrates, I think, here, and it begins uh, so, so innocently, is that there's this blatant, slippery slope of idolatry and selfishness that seemingly isn't a big deal in the beginning, but it ends up culminating in this disastrous result of death. And that's how sin, that's how temptation works. I want to read this to you in James chapter 1. We're going to actually read this uh, twice today, but uh, James 1, 13 through 15 says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The last way that listed here that Israel failed that we can learn from was that they tested the Lord. They grumbled against God. Verses 9 and 10 says this, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did as they were killed uh, by the destroying angel. I believe that this is in reference to Numbers chapter 21. Um, I'm going to read just uh, a few verses here in four, 4 through 9. It says that they traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on their way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. That was provided by God miraculously. And then in verse 6, it says this, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. The people, uh, they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then anyone who is bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And this is, uh, Adam preached a great message on this probably years ago now. Uh, it had to be years ago now. It's on our podcast somewhere. You should look it up. <laughs> Um, this being a type of Christ, uh, awesome, you should listen to it. But what we see here, uh, I think, what we see here in the Israelites is this propensity to complain. Um, and it reveals this self-centered attitude where they prioritize their own desires over God's glory. And I think this echoes the problems that we see amongst the Corinthian Christians who similarly refuse to relinquish their entitled rights, if you will, to consume meat offered to idols for the benefit of their fellow believers. And so I think that the danger here is that the Corinthians, um, <clears throat> they downplay the significance of the matter concerning the consumption of meat. When they're talking about this meat sacrifice to idols, they're 
They're wanting to downplay it as though it's not a big deal. They want to downplay <clears throat> the potential impact on it being a stumbling block to others. They, they want it to not be a big deal. But Paul aims to emphasize that this seemingly small issue actually uh, mirrors a self-centered and selfish heart, a quality that led to the destruction of the Israelites with similar attitudes in the wilderness. While it might be viewed as a minor symptom, Paul stresses that it signifies a profound and perilous spiritual ailment. The Corinthians are spiritually sick. This is what I want you to take away from this. They're spiritually sick, and the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols is merely a symptom of something, something it's far more nefarious, uh, nefarious, and it's that they have unloving and self-seeking hearts. This is the root cause of the problem, and this is what Paul is attempting to address. And I believe the warning of Paul here is clear. If it happened to Israel, it can happen to you. He's saying, put your heart in check, because Israel was destroyed <laughs> because of this. So don't let this go unchecked. Let's deal with it. And 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13 says this. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except for what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Friends, for us to be victorious over temptation, and in, particu in, in, in particular words are good. Uh, but in particular, I, I want to kind of focus on the temptation of selfishness in context of what we're reading about here. For us to be victorious over it, we need to be aware that we're actually vulnerable to it. I think so many of us uh, kind of live in this mindset, maybe we've been saved for 20, 30 years, that this isn't a problem for us anymore that we've been in church maybe the entirety of our lives, that this isn't something that we struggle with or this isn't something that we deal with. I think this is where, uh, where the, the, the caution to take heed lest we fall really is important for us. For us to be victorious over temptation, we need to be aware that we're actually vulnerable to it. I like what Adam Clark says about this here. He says, the highest saint under heaven can stand no longer than he depends upon God and continues in the obedience of faith. He that ceases to do so will fall into sin and a great and get a darkened understanding and a hardened heart. I want to read what James says about temptation one more time. Verses 1, 13 through 15. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Sometimes, friends, I think we downplay the role of the enemy. I think we, we want to, we understand that he's powerless compared to Jesus. Right? I, I've put that picture up on the screen where we have Jesus arm wrestling Satan, and we've kind of laughed at it before, understanding that there's no contest between the Lord and the devil. It's not something that is even in the, we can't compare it. God is omnipotent and the devil is not. But the devil is wise. He's cunning, uh, if you will. He does prowl around, prowl around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Um, he is a great adversary, a great enemy, and I don't want us to downplay him to the place where he's just like the stupid little red guy with a pitchfork on our shoulder, you know, trying to convince us to do bad things. No, he wants to kill you. He wants to destroy your life, and he wants to tempt us. You look at Job, you look at Peter, and I need you to understand this when it says that uh, God doesn't tempt anyone. <laughs> the devil does. But God is faithful and he is good in what he allows into our lives in terms of temptation. 
you need to understand this, that God is the one that allows temptation into our life based upon what he knows we can handle in him. This is, this is crazy. We're, we're going to talk about this, but I don't, want, I don't want anybody to be confused for a moment because given the opportunity, the devil would destroy you. It is God's grace and mercy and his power that keeps him at bay. Does that make sense? Okay, we, we've talked about that a long time in terms of, of interesting things to talk about. But when it says here, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. How many of you guys have been tempted here? Everybody, woo, you guys are following me. I need you to understand something. Being tempted is not sinful. We're all tempted. Jesus himself was tempted. It's when we stay in that place of temptation and give in to that place of temptation that it becomes sin. And uh, that's just something for us to, to be, make note of. Uh, and guess what? Temptation does not go away as you become more spiritually mature. I, want, I know that this sounds like, oh, man, really? <laughs> but you ask any man that has been following Jesus for any number of years if it, gets, uh, if it just gets easier. The, the, the case of the matter is that temptation is still real, still follows us. Now, the grace of God and what we're able to bear, I believe, increases. <laughs> and God trusts us and he empowers us as we lean into him more and more. But don't be shocked when temptation just doesn't go away because you prayed a prayer or you said yes to Jesus. Temptation is still there, but it's the faithfulness and goodness of God that provides us a way of escape that is awesome. You see, temptation is only effective because it presents the pleasures of something without the repercussions. That's the deceitfulness of our enemy. He's never forthcoming in the fine print, right? No one wakes up one morning and says, you know what? I want to ruin my life today. I think I'm just going to leave my family uh, and all of these different things. That doesn't just happen spur of the moment. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, you know what? From a completely healthy mind state and, and, a, and a healthy walk in love with Jesus, be like, you know what I want to do? I want to become a meth head and throw my life away. Right? That doesn't just happen out of the blue. The, the enemy is, is subtle and he's, he's tricky. He's deceptive. And temptation works that way. Right? Nobody, nobody, the enemy's not out there tempting you with a broken life and a messed up marriage and a drug addiction. Right? He's tempting you with a temporary pleasure or a temporary high that you could engage with. Right? He's, he's trying to tempt you maybe with uh, some kind of release and relief from your problems and your stress. He's not giving you the full picture of what he's offering. I think a great example of uh, temptation is found in, is in one of my great temptations, and that is a fresh powder day on the mountain. There's a few of you that have had the privilege of riding with me. Uh, not the privilege, the... That joke was going to be funny if I would have finished it, but um, you've, had the, you've had the opportunity to ride with me on a powder day. Elliot, Elliot probably knows this more than anybody, where uh, it's, it's like early season. It's like November. We've had our first big snow, and it looks so enticing to go off into the waterfall area or into the trees. In fact, this even happened this year. I was riding with Aaron. I was like, Aaron, whatever we do, you just need to tell me, stay on the groomer because I know that it's going to be bad. What happened within like 30 seconds of us being on our first run this year? I went into the trees and I didn't come out <laughs> because it was enticing, right? It was we, we had this great storm and there was, there was awesome snow that had just fallen and it looked so perfect. It looked so beautiful. Like, man, this is, this is, this is where I want to be and this is the run that I want to go down. And as you, uh, as you would go into the trees on a snowboard, um, there is no base. 
And uh, this happened with Caleb, actually. I was riding with Caleb, and we were cruising the trees on Alberta, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. We're flying. And the next thing I know, I'm tomahawking down the mountain because I hit a tree that was underneath the snow that you couldn't see, right? Nobody crashes into trees and rocks on purpose. For the most part, nobody <laughs> crashes into trees and rocks on purpose, but it happens when you don't see them. And uh, I think that this is kind of the idea of temptation. That's the, that's the lure of the enemy. He presents us with something that he knows that we want, something that's pleasurable, something that's desirable. But what he doesn't do is show us what's underneath the surface that really wants to destroy and disrupt us, disrupt our walk with God. How many of you guys have heard the language that God won't give you more than you can handle? Right? You've had that promise. It's probably been quoted to you at some point in time. Um, and I, I hope that you know by now that that is a lie. God will always give you more than you can handle. In fact, we're promised that in Scripture, that life is going to be more than we can handle, but that we should take part that he's overcome the world, right? <laughs> I, I, think, I think Scripture more more appropriately gives, uh, gives credit to the fact that we can't handle. <laughs> but he does promise to be there with us in the midst of us, in the midst of it. What he does promise, though, is to not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. That's an entirely different promise. This is where we see the grace and the mercy of God because the enemy, our adversary, the devil, will 100% tempt you beyond what you could bear. But it is God's mercy that allows it to not take place. Right? That's, that's what he had to, he has to, have Job, when, he, when he comes before God in the book of Job, he wants to destroy Job. God restricts the access of the enemy to his life. Right? That's what happens with Peter. Right? It says that, the enemy, the adversary, had asked to sift Peter like wheat. But we see Jesus interceding and praying for Peter that that wouldn't happen. And that's what happens for you and I. And God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. This is the same principle that's true. God never expects you to do something for him. He never expects something from you that he's not fully prepared and equipped you to actually do. In him. You see, God has promised to supervise all temptation that comes at us through the world, through the flesh, through the devil, and he promises to limit it according to our capability to endure it, according to our capability as we rely on him, not our capability of relying on ourselves. Does that make sense? Because you guys aren't going to make it. I don't care who you are. You're not tough enough to withstand temptation. I'm certainly not tough enough to withstand temptation. But as we rely upon the Lord, he's faithful to provide a way of escape. And I love how this jumps into the next section that we're going to be in uh, next week in chapter 10, where he says, flee idolatry. Similar language to what he's used already where he says, flee sexual immorality. And it comes back to the, the place where I so desire for us as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, that we would stop asking the question of how close to the line can we get and still be okay. I so desire us for to ask the question about what is actually pleasing to the Lord's heart and how far in the opposite direction can we run with everything inside of us sustained and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to the Lord. If I could kind of summarize everything and what I believe Paul is giving this history lesson for right now is that he wants to deliver people from selfishness. I think that's the crux and core of the problem with this uh, with this uh, this whole uh, language or with this whole issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Where Paul has spent three chapters kind of saying, "Hey, technically you can do it, 
but you shouldn't for the sake of your brother. And you should actually be willing to give up your rights and not live selfishly because all of this is exposing something that's more wrong is that you're so concerned about your rights and what you can and cannot do that you're forgetting to love your brother. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to find more of our messages, get connected with our church, or partner with us financially, you can find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Thanks again, and have a blessed week.